All of her life, she'd had visions and claimed to speak directly to God. A young farm girl of piety and faith, she even broke the rules. She became a warrior for France, only to have people who had praised her eventually turn on her. In a time of peril and danger, of war and superstition, poor little Joan of Arc, at the age of only 19, was burnt at the stake as a heretic, sacrificing her own life the flames of the pyre. This is Blind History, where we unpack some of the most well-known people from history, some of the people who made the world what it is today. And I am with Anthony Medera, and we're talking Joan of Arc. So we go from one saint to another. Both of these women had to wait until after they were dead to be proclaimed saints, which usually happens, but the stories are very different. Joan of Arc was very young when she died, and in those short years that she was alive, she made enormous political difference in Europe. She got herself involved in the Hundred Years' War between France and England in a very, very powerful way, and became the savior of not only the monarch in France, who was a weak king, but also of France itself. She saved them from complete conquest by King Henry V of England. I'm actually blown away by Joan. I mean, she died at 19. And the fact that who's going to believe a 16-year-old? Who was illiterate? 100% illiterate. Couldn't ride a horse, couldn't write. She could barely plant a few veggies. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, the the facts are all there. She was there at the coronation of Charles VII. That's just incredible. But maybe just to paint the picture briefly, the Hundred Year War started with Edward III because there's a long history of the English and the French and in terms of the English having right to to France or parts of France. And Edward wanted France. And ultimately that started the Hundred Year War. And and she was fundamentally part, uh, definitely the start of the ending of that Hundred Year War. It probably pinnacled with Henry V. Now, you love Henry V. I do, He's one of your favorite kings. Yeah. Do you want to just quickly tell us as part of her story a little bit about him? So Henry V, he made a treaty. Yes, the current king, he he suffered from dementia, Charles VI, the French. Mm Mm-hmm. The French king and yeah, they, they weren't a very strong line genetically. The Valois branch of the French monarchy, they were mostly very inbred. Um, they had trouble fathering sons. Um, there, there were there were lots of very bad marriages within the family, so there was inbreeding. They were crook-backed and had uh, bad jaws and bad teeth, and they were generally quite feeble-minded. Some of them went mad. Some of them were just very, very slow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not a great yeah. line. And it's no doubt that, uh, you know, it was to France's advantage that they died out shortly after this period of history because then the Bourbon dynasty took mm. over. And, and from there we had the, the great French kings of the, of the 15, 16, and 1700s. But Henry, who was actually a very, very strong king, you know, there's a lot of talk about his young life when he was a prince, et cetera, et cetera, and a playboy. But ultimately, when he became king, he put his head down. He was a warrior king. And he won quite a few battles against the French. And suddenly they realized, especially King Charles VI, that this guy is strong. And he just buckled. Ultimately, in the end, there was a treaty where Henry, they would leave Charles VI as in the king of France in name only. And then ultimately, Henry's son would accede to both Thrones, France and England. And it was his daughter, sorry, Charles VI's daughter was married to Henry. That's right. So that was his grandchild, basically. 
Henry's also was descendant from Edward III, so there was a good lineage there. So that's basically what happened. So Henry got what Edward III really wanted, control and king of England and France. And this is where Joan came in. Yeah, and unfortunately, Henry also didn't last a very long time. And when his son came to the throne of both France and England, supposedly, he was too young to really be able to imprint any authority on that. And as a result, the whole dream of a united France and England fell apart mm. shortly after. But it was through no fault of Henry V's that that happened. Yeah. And Joan of Arc was born into this world where there was a contestation of thrones, where there was huge uproar over religious heresy. Um, there were some very evil people in the world of religion at that time who were starting inquisitions, who were calling people heretics, burning witches. It was really an awful time for religion. Suspicion everywhere. Not a great period in, in, in terms of anyone being proud of themselves. But I think that's probably why they be some people believed her, because there was a massive amount of superstition. And she could have been schizophrenic or she could have been bipolar, and she's talking yeah. to herself, you know, with the visions. And a lot of the things that she said predicted, supposedly, came true. So in the end, they actually started to take her seriously. And this led her to... To the prince who was Charles VI, he died, mm -hmm. but um, Charles VII, who the was the Dauphin. prince, the Dauphin, yeah, he actually gave her an audience. This particular generation was, you know, I don't know a lot about his dad, but this guy was yellow. Mm. I mean, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, what she, this poor peasant girl did for him to get him into power, he never backed her. She was present at his coronation, and in fact, for a while, he took her very seriously and took her advice and owed a lot of his authority to her. And there were a lot of people in France who had very little to look forward to um, without Joan of Arc. And because she was such a woman of inspiration and she believed so devoutly that God was on her side, she managed to infuse in the ordinary French soldiery a huge amount of, of devotion and uh, I suppose you could call it acclaim. And she was present when they conducted the siege of Orléans, which was, mm. was her, probably her greatest victory. And she was successful over the English at that point. But it didn't take long for them to turn on her because the French nobles were already factionalized. There were, there were two or three different groups of French nobles, some who supported the king, some who supported Joan, some who were quite favorable to the English. And the one faction, the Burgundian faction, allied with the English and captured her at Compagnie, and they handed her over to the English. And this was really the beginning of the end for poor Joan because she was put on trial by a bishop called Pierre Cochon, who was an awful man, like Torquemada of the Spanish Inquisition. He declared her guilty of heresy. He said that she had claimed to be speaking to God, but it was actually the devil. And this girl who was really not... Well-versed in literature Who was unable to really express herself The way that a learned bishop was Had no means of retaliating She had no means of explaining What was going on And he sketched the picture Either that she was mentally ill And that she was obviously Corrupted or possessed by demons Or that she'd actually been In league with Satan And knew that she was a bad person And was doing this as a conscious fraud Horrible yeah, he was terrible. He was proper, proper a devil yeah. in a bishop's coat. And then, obviously, she was very quickly declared a heretic and burnt at the stake, which is a horrible way to die. I mean, apparently what happens, um, and this was in the year 1431, 
And you can imagine a teenage girl being tied to a pole, like a gum pole, and all around her feet are arranged these, these what they call faggots of sticks, dry timber. And then these are lit, and they start to burn you from the feet up. But you actually don't die from the burning, painful as it is. You die from the asphyxiation from the smoke. And then, of course, the fire consumes you. Horrible. And she asked for a cross. There wasn't a cross around, so they gave her two sticks that she made a cross out of it. And people were so taken back by when she was burnt. There were a lot of people screaming in the crowds, you just killed a saint. It was a terrible time. And what an incredible journey she'd had up until that point. I try to imagine, to think, suddenly she, she learns to ride a horse. Mm-hmm. This is right in the very beginning when Charles said, the Duffer said, okay, so I'm listening to you. She learned to ride a horse and she basically led the army. Mm-hmm. As or, a woman. Can as you a imagine woman, in those days in armor? In armor. And what the English used to do was they would starve the enemies. So in other words, the, the enemy or whatever it might be would stay in the village and the village had a moat around it and was protected. And then the English would just wait. They'd set up camp. Could be months. And then they'd run out of food. They start eating. They were eating rats. They were eating horses. They were eating cats. The English were asleep. She managed to um, get into, with 200 of her soldiers, get into Orleans and mm. with food and more livestock. I don't know what the English were doing. They must and have been fast asleep. They must have been. And then she screamed over the wall, hey, because she always had quite a vicious temper. And, she, <laughs> and then she always used to swear at them and, and tell them what, <laughs> that she's going to take France from them. And then they would say back to her, I'm going to burn you at the stake. And she, she was a strong, strong character. And also during the trial, let's go across to the trial before with this horrible bishop. Yes. He thought this is going to be a joke. You know, I'm this learned bishop. And this is a peasant girl. She can't even sign her name. And she was so strong in her defense and unwavering and whenever you try to trick her without any education she knew how to how to answer hmm. it well i mean she was uh, eventually debunked of those charges she was pronounced innocent but this is unfortunately long after she was dead she was declared a martyr and she became a symbol of the catholic league declared a national symbol of france by napoleon she was beatified and canonized in the 1900s, and she's now one of nine secondary patron saints of France. So she has remained a popular figure in literature, in painting and sculpture, and other cultural works since that uh, very ugly death of hers. And many famous writers, playwrights, filmmakers, artists, and composers have created and continue to create cultural depictions of her. We don't know how she actually looked. There are very few contemporary pictures of Joan of Arc. And they haven't found any real uh, relics of hers. And you know how the, the Catholic Church loves to collect relics. But apparently there's a ring that they found that was believed to have been worn by Joan. And it passed through the hands of several prominent people, including a cardinal, a king, and the daughter of a British physician. And apparently it was sold at an auction to a theme park in, I think it was the early 1970s, for £300,000. Now, there's no conclusive proof that she owned the ring. But it's an unusual design, and it matches her own words about her ring at the trial. And the Arts Council later determined that that ring should not have left the United Kingdom. The purchasers appealed, including the Queen of England, that the ring should be allowed to remain in France. And it has reportedly uh, been passed along to some other people since then, but came from Cardinal Henry Beaufort, who was actually at the trial and execution in 1431. So there's something interesting. That is very, very interesting. So there's some relic left. Well, they, they did also find remains that are supposed to have been from under the, the funeral pyre, a charred human rib, carbonized wood, 
and a piece of linen and a, a femur of a cat, which is explained obviously by the fact that they used to burn cats with witches mm. because cats were their familiars, right? But they actually did forensic research on this stuff and they found actually that those relics came from an Egyptian mummy in the 6th or 3rd century BC and the charred appearance was the result of embalming substances, not from combustion. And they decided, no, no, these were completely fake. So they have been, I suppose, outed as, as hoaxes. But there's no, there's no actual physical evidence of Joan, but we know that she had to have existed. And, of course, the French crown was saved by her, so we know that politically she had enormous influence too. Oh, there was definitely a massive influence. I don't know, Gareth, six years? You know, what's interesting about Joan and I suppose some of the other women in this part of the series, is that you either are born to power or you have power thrust upon you. Or in the case of Joan, you rise to power through your own force of nature. And this woman had no advantage in her birth. She had no special skills or talents other than being fierce and absolutely devoted to God. And yet she rose to be effectively the leader of France in a time where there were only men. And in a time where if you weren't royal, you didn't have a hope in hell. And here she was, taking to the fore, taking to the battlefield. And as you say, just an unapologetic, strident, powerful, self-assured sort of woman of, of great warrior potential. And someone who actually ended up fighting some of the greatest soldiers of her time. And very charismatic. To be able to just come pitch up and lead. I don't know what she was hearing. You know, she was hearing voices, etc. The saints. Yeah, there's still but, people today are hearing things. Yeah, she took that. She said, I've got to save this yellow-bellied prince. Yeah. So, you know, that part of the story, it doesn't wash with me. It's just uh, they, they basically offered ransom. They said, look, we've captured her. You pay me for her. The English offered 10000 I'm not sure what the currency was at the time, but they offered, which is a significant amount of money. The French offered 6000 and the Dauphin offered zero. Hmm. So ungrateful. Exactly, yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Blind History, brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. This is CliffCentral.com.